I don't know what to say. How do we say? Do we say welcome? <laughs> yeah, you know, you just say hey. What's going on? What's up, guys? Well, you can tell them what the show is. Yeah. Yo. If they don't already know. Yo, you're listening to Bonnets at Dawn, the <laughs> hippest literary podcast this side of the 20th century. Am I right, co-host Lauren? You're right. Right on. We are, I, I mean, we're both Team Gaskell. Should we? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to do it? Yeah, man. (laughs) That was bad. Hello, and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn. I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Gaskell. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Mr. Hale. So we are back with another Gaskell episode. This is a North and South recap for chapters. Ooh, what chapters are we covering today, Hannah? 22, 22 to 32, I yeah, think? Yeah, 22 to 32. All right. So, um, yeah, I hope you guys have done your homework. But um, before we jump into the recap, of course, I'm back with more Lily facts. Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't... I'm sorry. Like, I understand, Lauren. I understand mm-hmm. why, but also, on many levels, I don't enjoy the name. I know. That's why I keep saying it, really. Well. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> You're a monster. So, um, yeah, I'm a monster. I have been reading um, A Habit of Stories by Jenny Uglo. I know that you, I think you said this on Twitter or maybe on Facebook, like you were looking for an Elizabeth Gaskell bio and that's, that's a really good one. It's, it's pretty hefty. Okay. Yeah. But that's the one that I'm reading and that's the one that was recommended to me. And um, I think it's pretty good. I I had another one um, that I was reading beforehand that I did not like, and I cannot remember the name. I'll avoid that one at all costs. (laughs) Stay away from that one. It was no good. Um, But yeah, this week I was reading all about Ruth, and I just want to talk to you guys a little bit about Ruth. Is that another Um, nickname? Because I think it's it's really interesting. So that is um, her book that came out after Mary Barton. Okay. So there's name for the heroine of the story. Um, It came out in 1853. Now this is so this is after Mary Barton, and it's before North and South. Okay. In the middle. Also published that year was Villette. <laughs> and um, both Charlotte and Elizabeth were kind of like nervous about Villette and Ruth and were kind of actually writing to each other about them and talking about them, which is very cute, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, they have some... And Charlotte had a lot of really interesting things to say about uh, Ruth, which I wish I could get into, but it would kind of give a little bit too much of the plot away. Okay. And um, I kind of want to save it because I actually just like selfishly, I just want to read Ruth kind of fresh. Yeah. No, but I I'll would tell like you guys a little it. bit about it. Yeah, I think it, it sounds awesome, actually. Um, so Ruth is about a young orphan girl who works in a sweatshop. One night, she is selected to go to a ball to repair torn dresses, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And apparently That's it was cool. kind of like a So they would practice. just like sit in the house waiting. Yeah. 
I ripped my prom dress about 12 times, so I would have just been in and out of that room at prom. Just... It would have been perfect. It would have been great for me. I could have invited yeah. one of my, you know, non-dance-focused friends to come along and sew my dress. Who are we kidding, yeah. Lauren? I would have been <laughs> sewing the dresses. Like, <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> right? So, um... When Ruth is at the ball, she meets a bad lad. Uh-oh. Yep. And his name is Henry Bellingham. And they form a secret friendship. Now. Yes, like, is it secret because it's sexy? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. My favorite kind of friend. Exactly. Um, so her boss ends up finding out and then she is dismissed. And she is taken to London by Henry, and she lives as a fallen woman. Oh, that's no good. Yeah, well, there is, it is a story of redemption, too. So, so she ha- she is redempt. There is, there's some things that happen, guys, but I don't want to get into it because I don't want to spoil it. Like, I read a little bit for myself, and then I skipped over a bunch of it because I was like, no, I want to read this book. I need to read it. Because <laughs> just like the beginning is like enough for me, just like the orphan girl who goes to a ball to repair torn ball dresses. Like, I'm like, I'm in. Yes, I'm in. You're hooked. So um, I like what Ginny Uglo like says about this, uh, the story saying that the novel was a daring step in a, the transformation of working class women from object to subject. Um, the themes in Ruth are, uh, you know, the fallen woman, unmarried sex. We, we deal with illegitimate children, religion. Yeah, it's so it's yeah. And you, yeah, you are you're looking at a different like class of people. Yeah, perhaps aren't represented um, in literature as much. And actually, um, similar themes are come up in the old nurses story, which we kind of talked about last week. Um, the comic version of that. Oh, which yeah. I, I have copies of, and we will probably um, give them away at Gaskell House, so. Yeah, you should probably come and see us at Gaskell House, I guess, guys. Yeah, exactly. Shucks. Um, It's interesting to note that in 1851, um, The Scarlet Letter was published, and that was the same year that Elizabeth started on Ruth. Uh, Bellingham is also the name of the governor in Scarlet Letter. So she definitely took the name, took the inspiration from there. And um, Elizabeth and Hawthorne, like the writer of Scarlet Letter, they Mm -hmm. almost met. Like they had a bunch of friends in common. (laughs) So they kind of like almost met several times, but they just kind of kept missing each other. That's also something we're going to talk about. Wait, was he he English? He was American, but he worked in Liverpool. That's bizarre. Because, so, you know, they... Liverpool, like, not not far from Manchester. Yeah. That Well, that's where my opa's from. Oh, really? Yeah, Liverpool. Um, but, you know, we don't we don't read the Scarlet Letter at school over here. Oh, you don't? That's... So it's a book. It's a book that every... I would say that everyone probably knows it by name, but I do not know a single person in... Who's read it. ...England who has read it. Whereas all of my uh, oh, college my friends God. in Chicago have obviously read it. And I've seen Easy A, so I know about the Scarlet Letter and I know what the word tallywhacker means. So, yes, Americans, I know what a tallywhacker is and no, it's not a word <laughs> that we use. I'm sorry. So you, you've, you've got the gist of it. I've got, there's like, a, Emma Stone has a red A on her and that is the premise of also the book. 
there you go. There are, you know, <laughs> there there are some there's some similarities between the two books, like both deal with seamstresses, both um, deal with illegitimate children and the way that like society views, you know, fallen women. So it's, they're very, you know, they're in the same way. There's some some things. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth Gaskell was a fan. Um, Now, yeah, so Hawthorne, they kind of, they tried to make it work. They couldn't make it work. We're going to do a whole episode on Elizabeth Gaskell and who she knew, because we've had a little bit of chatter about this in the Facebook group. Like She knew everyone. She knew everyone. <laughs> like, uh, reading this book, A Habit of Stories, just the name dropping is out of control. So we are going to go into detail with that. Um, but the reason I want to talk about Ruth was because it was a scandal. Why? Well, you know, the themes, it was outrageous. It was a crazy, sexy book, right? Like, it right, cost... Yeah. And Elizabeth is a minister's wife, right? So... Yeah, yeah, She is supposed to be... She's. We talked a little bit, like, she has this, like, maternal, like, persona, right? Mrs. Gaskell, like, she's writing these very... These nice books about, you know, the working class and social issues. But, you know, she's not supposed to be, like, talking about sex and desire, yeah, and I wonder um, if also people were like, oh, well, then she must have been up to this. Like, she was... How, how know, is she writing about it if she wasn't doing it herself? If she right? doesn't know. What's really funny, like, Elizabeth Gaskell had a lot of anxiety about this book and, like, writing it. And, like, when her friends were reading it and discussing it with her, like, she just was, like, even doubting herself. She's like, maybe I am, like, really oh. inside. Maybe I'm a fallen woman. Oh, no. Oh, poor Gaskell. I know. Um, it cost her some of her friendships. She did ask particular people, like, just not to read it. She was like, just don't read it. I don't want to, I don't want to get no fight with you about it. Like, it's, just don't do it. Um, some of the members of William Gaskell's congregation burned the book. And a lot, oh, really? well, a lot of people burned the book, actually. Um, it was removed from Bell's Library in London because of it was indecent. <laughs> So yeah, it was a big scandal. I mean, a lot of a lot of people wrote negative reviews on this book. It was it really affected her career and it's going to be the first of two scandals later on. There's going to be another scandal which we will do an episode about revolving around the life of Charlotte Bronte. So, um a scandal to do with Charlotte Bronte. That book, yeah, that was also a scandal. So, but yeah, but this is at least, you know, Elizabeth has like some, she had a, she has a little experience with this before she gets around to writing The Life of Charlotte Bronte. Um, I will say this, not everyone hated the book, okay? okay? I think due to the scandal, the word of mouth spreading, people talking about it, people burning it, naturally what happens is it becomes very popular, right? And there are certain libraries where there was just like a huge waiting list, for this title and everyone wanted it yeah well people want to read the shocking thing it's like in the itv adaptation of northanger abbey where isabella thorpe is just like oh my gosh have you got to this awful part it's too bad like i couldn't read it but obviously right. she could read it because she's recommending it to someone right <laughs> like people want to be offended shocked and horrified yes so one person that actually did really like the book was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. So just name drop for you. Who is that? You don't know Elizabeth Barrett Browning? <laughs> no, because I'm stupid. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Um, so Elizabeth Barrett Browning is a Victorian poet, my darling. 
Oh, poetry. I don't, you know. Yeah, you know her. You know her. We um, we should actually probably cover her because she has also a very interesting life story. Unless she wrote Bog Face, which is my favourite poem, and you should Google it. Like, <laughs> I don't know who she is. <laughs> she actually wrote some of my favourite poetry, and I don't really care for poetry, um, except for I do like Emily Bronte's poetry. Oh, I like Emily Dickinson's The One About the Gun. That's pretty good. Oh, yes. I do like Emily Dickinson as well. So um, I only like poetry written by women that have first names that start with an E. Oh, also, I hate Bukowski's poetry. (laughs) Just, I hate it. I tried to read it. Like, this, obviously, it was a guy. A guy gave me this huge tome of Bukowski and was like, hey, you'll really like this. And I read it and I was like, it's trash! I think that happens to every woman who, like, is a literature (laughs) studies, like, major. I'm like, why are you giving this to me? I don't, I don't want it. That is like, I'm positive that happened to me as well. (laughs) Dreadful. Awful. Totally dreadful. Um, speaking (laughs) of, speaking of dreadful men. Oh, no. (laughs) One man who actually did like, um, this book was John Ludlow. And he uh, wrote a review for the North British Review and Mm -hmm. sort of endorsed Ruth's cause. Like, he's like, I kind of see, like, you know, where Elizabeth Gaskell's coming from. And, like, I know what she's trying to do. And, you know, it's like a worthy cause. But in his, like, very lengthy review, he starts (laughs) talking about women writers. And I just want to read part of it out to you. Oh, no. Because I just, I had to. So he starts asking these questions, like, why should we have women novelists, he said. (laughs) And if so, what woman should or what women should write novels? He declared that married women made excellent novelists, but single women did not. And (laughs) And contrasted Mrs. Gaskell's full and wholesome and most womanly perfection with a quality in Miss Bronte, which he found harsh, rough, unsatisfying, and unwomanly. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's it's the bitter spinster thing. It's if you're a single woman old enough to be writing novels and you're not married, then surely there's something wrong with you and that you just hate the world because nobody loves right? you. I just was like... Also, the other point about that that really, like, got to me was, like, also pitting Charlotte Bronte against Elizabeth Gaskell in that way. And also knowing that Charlotte and Elizabeth had been, like, corresponding while they were writing their novels and talking about them and actually really critiquing each other and offering each other support and advice. And, um, yeah. John Ludlow's (laughs) a fuckboy. He's had enough time. He totally has. Fuck him. That's Moving on. You, John. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> to, so, moving to on Lou. to North and South. <laughs> yeah. Chapter 22. We're going to dive straight in. Let's do Chapter it. Chapter 22. A blow and its consequences. So, uh, Mags is... Last, last time we saw Mag, she had just arrived at Marlborough Mill. And so at the beginning of this chapter, she's let into Thornton's house and everybody is in a tiz. They're all stressed out. Oh my out. God, it's the worst timing ever. <laughs> it's terrible timing. 
Um, they've got some Irish workers just locked in the mill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women folk are in the house and they are, you know, all kind of huddled together. They can hear everyone at the gates, like, crowding around. And kind of Margaret is thinking to herself, oh, this is a really bad time to come and ask for a waterbed. Uh, and then she says, could I have a waterbed, please? <laughs> so she just is like, give me the waterbed. And then suddenly there's this awful noise and... um. The uh, rioters, the people on strike, are just bashing in the gate. Thornton's arrived. The, there's a horrible noise. They're going mad because they want to get in and kill Thornton, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, they're going to rip him it's apart. It's like that scene from so Beauty Thorn- and the Beast. Like, kill the beast. Yeah, it is. Kill the beast. It's exactly like that. That's a really, <laughs> that's a really good link. Uh, so Thornton's basically says to the women, like, get away from the windows. Um, but actually, maybe you can slip out the back. They can't slip out the back. The entire house has been circled, so they are definitely stuck until the soldiers arrive. They've got about a 20-minute wait. Fanny starts fainting. Of course. She, she She's used to this. She's running up and down the stairs, screaming, like, unbolting the door to let her brother in, bolting it shut again. She faints. And then there's this great line, because Mrs. Thornton lifts her with a strength that was as much that of the will as of the body and just carries her yeah. away. So I'd like everyone to take a minute and give Mrs. Thornton a round of applause for that. <laughs> I'm going to call this the Mrs. Thornton recap as well, because I... Um, Fair enough. I really enjoyed my time with her this week. Yeah, same here. <laughs> so Max basically is just like, I ain't going anywhere. She stays by the window. Um, Everyone else goes upstairs. And then Mags kind of says to Mr. Thornton is there nothing you can do to quiet them down? So they've pushed the gate in, they're surrounding, like, they're just right outside the door, basically. And she says to him, don't let the soldiers come in and cut down poor creatures who are driven mad. And then goes on to say, speak to them man to man. And that really winds him up. Um, I think it's this idea that he's not being a man. Yeah. Like, she's, you know, like he's somehow being a coward. So he stomps off, he goes, he goes out there. Uh, and faces the rioters who are described as being gaunt as wolves and mad for prey. So it's kind of this like animalistic imagery going on. Yeah, it's like, great. Throughout that whole bit. And not just animals, but like wild, rabid, bloodthirsty, like teeth bared, claws out. It's really, it it's really atmospheric. energy, this Yeah, chapter. it's a really, really, really cool scene. And then this, I think this is my favourite line for this week. Um, so Mags is leaning out the window, but she's got that bloody bonnet on. She can't hear anything. <laughs> so she tore off her bonnet and leant forward to hear. And I really like the idea of her being so caught up in the moment that she doesn't care about like social conventions. She just rips off this stupid hat that's, you know, uh, blinkers you. You can't see everything. You can't hear anything. Your world is really small. And it's almost like She's like, her world is bigger when it's off, you know? Yeah, she She wants absolutely. to be involved. She's like not restricting herself. And she notices while she's looking out the window that they're all taking off their clogs and they're going to start throwing clogs oh, at yeah. him. And that doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> so uh, she no. runs outside without really thinking. There's this um, great kind of rushing sentence. She runs out and she stands between Mr. Thornton and the mob and she just pleads with them to stop. And then he gets huffy, comes out from behind her and then just winds them up. And he's like, guess what, guys? I'm not sending the Irish <laughs> workers away. Do what you want. But like, 
Yeah, he's not helping. And he's like, it, he keeps being described as just being like stood there with his arms crossed and this like resting bitch face expression. <laughs> just, I'm not doing anything you want. Um, so then she notices... <sighs> stubborn man, stubborn man. Yeah, he's so stubborn. Um, and the crowd are like, they're still getting ready to throw clogs at her, uh, <laughs> at him. So she does the only thing she can think to do and she throws her arms around his neck to kind of shield him with her body. And then a rock is thrown and because of where she is, it hits her on the head and she kind of falls to the floor and there's blood everywhere. And then Thornton kind of props her on the step, leans her head against the door frame and then turns around and is like, come on then, come and like kill me if you want to. <laughs> like gets in the crowd and is just like, what do you want? Come on if you think you're hard enough. But obviously stoning a, de- a woman to death is pretty awkward. Yeah. Uh, so everyone just kind of starts leaving. <laughs> they can hear the soldiers are coming. So we've had about 20 minutes. Soldiers are on their way. Margaret's bleeding to death on the steps. Thornton's not having any of it. He's like, go in, full Victorian wrestler. He's going to bump some heads together. Uh, so the crowd disperses. Thornton lifts her up and kind of carries her inside. And then there's this insane moment where he is basically like over her body and he calls her he says oh my margaret my margaret yeah and realizes in that moment um like he knows that he likes her but i think it's this idea of losing her and yeah yeah, it just says that he he realizes everything that she means to him in that moment and then in an instant like it's over before it's begun because i think it's mrs thornton that walks in Mm-hmm. and he's just like no one knows no one knows that this like little outburst has happened and it's not in his head like he's saying it out loud and he's just like stood up and they're just like oh he seems a bit stressed yeah so he's still trying to hide that passion from other people mm-hmm. um so mr thornton has to go and check that the irish workers are okay mrs thornton is obviously very distressed that margaret is apparently bleeding to death on her sofa yeah <laughs> Uh, and she's like Jane go and get the doctor and Jane's like I am not going I am staying in this house and so Mrs Thornton is obviously livid she's furious and then she goes to get the doctor and so Jane the seven and Fanny are just like bathing Margaret's head with cologne mm-hmm. like what is why I'm wondering I guess if it's, it's just like a rose water or something well, cologne um, is suggests like alcohol, I was right? And then alcohol would clean the yeah. wound. Yeah, yeah. And right. then it evaporates quite quickly, which means it would be co- cooling. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. So they're doing that, and the whole time they're doing that, they're like, "Oh, well, Sarah, the other maid, says that she threw her arms around his neck, and then they're like, oh, she's in love with him. Oh, well, obviously she's in love with him because she put herself in like harm's way to save him. Right. Little do they know." That Margaret, although she is silent and looks like she's dying, can actually hear them. She can. <laughs> and she's pissed off. So like, she bad. is so angry. And then, uh, so Mrs. Thornton and the doctor come, and Margaret's just like, I'm going to go home. <laughs> like, I'm fine. I would feel better if I was not here. And it's not Dr. D, it's Dr. Lowe. It's a different, different doctor because this town's full of him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she goes home and she resolves on her way home to do the classic hail party trick of not telling anyone shit. Exactly. <laughs> She's just like, no way. And then she can't like concentrate well, we on anything. we never need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
the I think the thing that stuck with me as well is just the thing that's making her angry is that the words spoken about herself were insolent. Yeah. That's like a funny word choice, isn't it? It's like It is a funny word choice. Yeah, it's, it's I think it's even just the idea of being gossiped about rather than the gossip yeah. itself. It's just like I think it's just having she likes to like control her image a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh chapter 23, mistakes. The very first thing we're told in this chapter is that Mr. Thornton has sent the Irish to the pub for dinner. Yeah. I mean, like, is it safe? Is that, is this a good idea? Is this, I mean, what, why are you doing I this? I don't think so. And then also he says that he sent Father McCready, or like, is a priest with a very Irish name. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, oh, I got this priest. And he's oh, yeah, gonna, I sent like, this guy to this. like, just go in, deal with them, tell them not to go home. Everything's, everything's fine. And uh, he's just like, where's Margaret? But oh, by the way, oh, by the way, where's Margaret? And yeah, so they, she, Mrs. Thornton's just like, well, she's gone home, you know, she didn't want to stick around. And it kind of comes up that Margaret has thrown herself between Mr. Thornton and a rock. And Mrs. Thornton says, a girl in love will do a good deal. And they kind of talk about the fact that she's shown that she is in love with him, as far as they're mm-hmm. concerned. And Mr. Thornton cannot stop thinking about and just going over and over, um, the quote is, the touch of her arms around his neck, the soft clinging which made dark colour come and go in his cheek as he thought of it. I mean... He is so moved steamy. by it. And yeah, there's like... It's That's kind why of, I want to read Ruth, because I'm like, oh God, Elizabeth Gaskell, I bet you could write something very steamy. Yeah, it's it's kind of hot, isn't it? And yeah. also, there's so much about it which is just it's just touch based because yeah. they like you wouldn't touch each other. You'd have like a handshake and stuff, and this is very intimate. Like mm-hmm. her entire body pressed against his, and not just if you think of the layers that people are wearing as well. Her arms against his neck is probably like anyway. Yeah. I imagine that Mr. Thornton actually has a raging hard on for the next <laughs> five days. <laughs> It's the most action he's had in a while. We, I mean, we don't know. Maybe he's got a, you know, a spinner on the side. <laughs> oh, God. He might. That's, a, that's a different story. That's a different story. It is. So Mrs. Thornton um, is just like, so what are you going to do now? And he's like, well, you know, I've got to go to the Hales. She's like, why are you going to the Hales? He's like, mum, you know, Come I've got to go. Come on. I've got to <laughs> yeah. go tonight. She's like, well, I'm going to send the waterbed, so I'll ask after Margaret. Like, I'll I'll make sure that everything's fine with Margaret, and then you don't need to go. You don't need to go. And he's like, I need to go. You know I need to go. And she has to say to him, she's like, okay, well, just listen. Like, I don't want you to go because I want you to spend one last night with me. Yeah. Like, that's why. So he, he goes off and he comes straight back and she's like, look, you know the reason I didn't want you to go is because this is my last night with you. We both know what conversation you're going to have. And he says to her, like, oh, don't be silly. She's definitely going to say no. And he totally ignores the fact that his mum, who never says anything nice to him, was just like, I'm heartbroken at the thought of losing you. Yeah. You, you are my pride and joy. I don't want to share you. Just give me a few more hours of having you to myself. 
Yeah. And it broke my heart so much, <laughs> this chapter. Like, not even about, you know, anything to do with Mr. Thornson, but just Mrs. Thornson. She's just losing her boy. Says that she was crushing down her own personal mortification at the little notice he had taken. Uh, I don't even know. I've written my notes down. I've written that quote down wrong. Cut that bit out. <laughs> well, she she is cru- like crushed that he just like moves along, that he just steamrolls. Well, he's through. just he's just thinking about Margaret. He's not thinking yeah. about her. And he's also like, Mom, you're gonna be there. Him. Like, don't worry about it. Like, whatever. Nothing's gonna change. Yeah. Yeah. He thinks he has a handle on every situation. I mean, he sort he kind of does a little bit. He's yeah. not wrong, is he? He's not wrong. Spoiler: He's not wrong. <laughs> So then we cut to Mags. Uh, while she's been out getting stoned to death, Bessie has asked her to go over, hang out, you know, watch some Netflix, chill on the sofa, read some Bible. But, you know, Mags doesn't want to go, understandably, <laughs> so she stays at home. And she is just sitting in her house thinking about the fact that people think that she loves Mr. Thornton. Yeah. She gets upset. And it says that she covered her face with her hands and when she took them away, her palms were wet with scalding tears. And when I read that, I was thinking that she's crying because she's embarrassed that, like, she's crying because they were talking about her or is she crying because she's saying that she doesn't want to marry him but she does and she's confused by her feelings. And then it goes on to say, I could not have been so brave for anyone else just because he was so utterly indifferent to me. Um, and then goes on I do not positively dislike him so it's like is she saying that basically I'm confused by Margaret I am so confused by Margaret is she (laughs) saying that she doesn't she doesn't like him because he doesn't like her I think is that what that line means I think so I I'm very confused by her because on one hand she does have this instinct, and I think that she is attracted to him. She doesn't want to be attracted to him because he is not representative of a life that I think she thought for herself. Yeah. Um, but there is nothing, there is, I think, and this is, what's, this is what I'm struggling with, and this is what I think makes the book so interesting. There is nothing in the text to this point right. to tell us that Margaret is interested in Mr. Thornson romantically. Right. Her actions say something and the way that other people are responding to her and her actions and what we're getting from their point of views would make you think that she's in love with him. But when it comes to her actual thought processes, you can't find a single quote that that outwardly says that she does. You can look at stuff and think that maybe it does. And she certainly likes him and esteems him. But in terms right. of wanting to marry him at this point, there is there is no evidence of that. And that's it's really interesting because there, because it's from her point of view. If she doesn't want to right. admit it, then it wouldn't be there because we're getting it from her point of view. Right. I think we've got to look at her actions too. Like even th- going back to like the dinner party, she's jumping in on conversations or she's watching him or she, but she's not admitting it. You know, like, we have Thornton openly admitting it. Like, I know where she's at at every moment in the room. She's not saying it, but she's actually doing it. But is she? I, I don't know. she is. <laughs> okay, so, spoiler, 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 spoiler. Obviously, they're going to get together at the end of the book. So, 
is our reading of this like are we do we read her actions in these early chapters as being like she's doing this because she's in love with him because we know they're going to get together do you know like it's such yeah. a puzzle I like don't... I read every line and I'm like like I... is she denying is, is she denying it like... or am I reading too much into it I don't think she's in love with him just yet but I do think she's very attracted to him yeah, she definitely likes his eye, uh, his eye, his eyes. And we're gonna get his, into something later too. Like I have something in my notes yeah. too, where like yeah, it starts to become. But isn't it a little bit more clear? But yeah, so all of these are just they're so delicious. Like these bits where yeah. she thinks about him. Like I just find myself it's, reading them again and again and it's again. It's confounding everyone. Oh, I love pulling it apart and just thinking about it. So yeah, yeah. no, it's great. And then um, the other thing that I find hilarious is. <laughs> this whole idea of she only did it because she's a girl like i did a woman's work (laughs) any woman would do this i I can walk pure before god because i'm not doing anything that any woman wouldn't have done um there's another line later on where she's basically like i was safe because i was a woman like my my i was protected by my sex and it's like well i mean yeah (laughs) There is a long history of violence against women in the world. You're being very naive. <laughs> very naive. Classic Margaret. Very though. naive. Classic Mags. Um, so that night she goes to sleep and she is stressed out by a very deep sense of shame that she should thus be the object of universal regard. We're going yeah. straight back to that idea of her being embarrassed and uncomfortable with the idea of her being an object of desire. Yes, she does not like it. She does not like being seen as a woman, which again, I find very confounding because I think with her relationship with her parents, like that would gel better with me if maybe she, if her parents were still like sheltering her and they had a different relationship. But Margaret is like the adult in this household. I've still got got a bit of reading to do around it, but I'm looking into, I've started looking at um, Victorian relationships with sex. Yeah. And um, like prudishness and frigidity, and um, yeah, like is it? She she talks about being a woman a lot and being a godly woman, yeah. And so is it's yeah. She she wants she's she's virginal, isn't she? Yeah. She's like she it's she's above it. Like sex is this very base thing. Desire is a very base thing. And so for her to feel it and for her to be an object of lust is almost like p- pulling her down into the mire. Yeah. Which is just, it, I think that's what, what Ergaskel's going with this, which I find interesting yeah. when contrasted with sort of the subject matter in Ruth, where, you know, you know, Gaskell is a woman who's not afraid to shy away from themes of sexuality and desire in young women. And so it's kind of like, oh, it's, it's interesting that she's just going there with this character. And all of all of the characters as well. Like, so far, we haven't had any sexual scandal. Mm-hmm. Like, none. It's true. It's true. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll get some later on. Maybe we'll get some later on. Yeah. Um, so, chapter 24 is kind of counter-named to chapter 23. It's called Mistakes Cleared Up. Uh, Mr. Thornton turns up at the Hales, and we all know why he's there. He's gone to ask the question... And as he's waiting yep. for Margaret to appear, he is contemplating the thought of her putting her arms around his neck and nestling there. Um, there's lots of very pretty language, almost as if she's like this little fairy creature. So he wonders if she will flutter to her natural home at his 
at his breast. He's got this idea of him. He, he wants to just open his arms and for her to just fall into his embrace, which yeah. obviously is never going to happen. No. And actually, and also I've got a question for you because when she does finally appear, there's this bit and it says her slow, deep breathing dilated her thin and beautiful nostrils. Lauren, do your nostrils dilate? <laughs> because I read that and then I just sat there for I mean, ages. what a sentence. Flexing my I nostrils. I also underlined, I underlined that sentence. I was like, what a, what a thing to say. What a thing to say. I know. I just... I. I also would think that, like, I mean, she does remark on it, but, like, you know, I'm thinking about Margaret's eyes and if they're covered and, like, if she's flushed or if she's pale or, you know, like, just yeah, yeah. The, the nostrils dilating is not something, if anyone, not somewhere I'd probably go. If anyone listening uh, thinks that they have particularly beautiful nostrils, I'd love to Let us know. see <laughs> them. Send us a picture of your nostrils, maybe. I don't know. Maybe don't. And then, I don't know why this bit was, like, so... I loved it, but Thornton shuts the door. I liked it, too. He he's just, it. like, shuts it. And I was like, yes, we're getting serious. It's going to be some smooching. There isn't any. No. Uh, Margaret cuts him off. She's basically just like, oh, yeah, if you've come here to say thanks, you like, you really do not need to. Like, you don't need to do that. Yeah. And this is when she says, we all feel the sanctity of our sex as a high privilege when we see danger. It's like, it's just my job as a woman, dude. Like, I, you know, what else was I going to do? You don't have yeah, to say like, thank you. It's like she's Batman. I, <laughs> she's the hero that they want, but not the one they need. I, I don't know what way around that quote goes. I do not know. <laughs> Uh, so Mr. Thornton announces that he owes everything to her and claims that he loves her as no man has loved a woman before. Wow. She's not into it. She says that his speech is shocking. Uh, she says it's blasphemous. She then says, shh, mum's asleep. And then she says it's offensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She shuts it all the way down. Yeah, she's just like, nope. No, no. And like, I think his speeches here are amazing. It's so great. It's I've great. got like two different extracts. So uh, one of them is, you look as if, you look as if you thought it tainted you to be loved by me. You cannot avoid it. I have never loved any woman before. My life has been too busy. My thoughts too much absorbed with other things. Now I love and will love. You can't and stop then, me. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. And then after she's rejected him, it's really cool as well because you don't, Gaskell doesn't tell you um, immediately what Margaret says. So because it's from Thornton's point of view when he first gives the speech, you've got Thornton kind of proposing, like saying to her that he loves that he loves her and he owes everything to her. And then she snatches his ha- her hand away and he, he hears her icy tone. And that's how you find out that she's not saying yes. Mm-hmm. And then you get her words. I just, I loved that. Yeah. Like telling us about the atmosphere and then telling us what she said. Um, so then he goes on to say, like, one one last thing, by the way, uh, one word more. You look as if you thought it tainted you to be loved by me. You cannot avoid it. Nay, if I would, uh, if I would, I cannot cleanse you from it. But I would not if I could. I have never loved any woman before. 
My life has been too busy, my thoughts too much absorbed with other things. Now I love and will love, but do not be afraid of too much expression on my part. So she's like, he yeah, he's saying to her, like, I'm gonna love you, but I'm not gonna tell you about it. It's just gonna happen. (laughs) And so Margaret is just like, Oh, stop talking about it. You're nice to my dad. Let's just be friends. We don't need to argue anymore. And he goes off, tears in his eyes, and she's just kind of in the sitting room, just like, well, you know what? I'd probably still do it. <laughs> I was right. I'm not I'm not wrong. Right. I'll do it again. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. How does that compare to the Darcy scene? The first proposal. Um, I mean, he proposes and she rejects. I there's I was looking, like I was aware and I was trying to think of similarities and maybe other people picked up on it, but I think I think it would be a stretch here to say. Like, aside from him proposing and her saying no. Yeah. Yeah. Because, there's a lot going um, on here. There is a lot going on here. And actually I think his his reaction to her proposal is very different to mm-hmm. Mr. Darcy's reaction. It is. Um Mr. Darcy kind of storms off and he's like Okay, fine. You know what? Fine. Fuck you. Like, I was lowering myself to be with you. You're not interested. So don't worry. I will never talk to you about this again. Whereas Mr. Thornton is just like, yeah, you know what? I can't help being in love with you. And I probably will still be in love with you. And I'm not going to pretend I'm not because I'm not a liar. So live with it. Like, it, it is what it is. It's really great. And unlike Darcy and Elizabeth, they have to see each other. Yeah, exactly. Classic romantic comedy setup. Yeah, their side is too small for there to be any idea of, you know, Mr. Darcy was able to just leave town. So you know, these, these two scenes are not, not that comparable, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think you can discuss the differences, but it's not, this isn't like a lifted thing or anything. Right. So moving on, chapter 25. My boy Fred is not what it's called. It's called Frederick, but he is... Hmm. I consider him to be my boy. Oh, all right. There we go. So uh, the chapter opens up with Margaret sitting around thinking about the two proposals that she's had so far in the book from Henry and Mr. Thornton. And mainly because Mr. Thornton as we just said, uh, said to her that he would not stop loving her and he openly defies her. Whereas uh, what I think is interesting here is that Margaret doesn't know this, but Henry actually had the same thought process. Yeah. And I didn't... I saw a few people talking about the contrast between Henry and Mr. Thornton. And I don't think here the contrast is that as far as Margaret can see... Henry propose, uh, slips out of friendship into kind of romance and then back into friendship again. And then she says that the difference between them is that she was never friends with Mr. Thornton in the first place. And so it's really weird. Mm-hmm. But what she doesn't know is that for these two men, they're, they're actually in the same position because Henry, when she turns him down and is like, oh, I, I almost love her more. Mm-hmm. It's just we haven't seen him for like multiple chapters. Yeah. So that makes me wonder if he's coming back. Oh, yeah. Because... Yeah, it's. I thought I thought that was interesting, and it isn't. It isn't just the because Mr. Thornton isn't going to be in front of everyone like really stressed out about it and like being horrible, is he? 
So he's going to do the same thing that Henry did. They're both going to react the same way. I just don't think that it will be like, yeah, it will just be like different ways in the same strain, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're doing the same thing, but she's making a comparison that I actually don't think is there. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, she cannot stop thinking about him. Like, at all. Like, whatever it is he's doing, it's working. Because she's just sat in her house thinking about Mr. Thornton. Oh, she yeah. can't get him off her mind. She says that she disliked him all the more for having mastered her inner will. Yeah. Like, she's angry. She knows that she can't stop. She's just obsessing over it. Well, I mean, we have to look at the action here, too, again, and not what she's saying exactly. It's like, oh, my, I can't stop thinking about him. Oh, yeah. She's like, I hate him so much. I can't get him off my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, but, you know, the perfect way to get a boy off your mind is to go and visit your dying, poverty-stricken friend, Bessie. Right. So that's what she does. Uh, so she goes, she starts reading to Bessie, but Bessie can't concentrate and they have a conversation about the riot that Margaret feels quite uncomfortable in because she really doesn't want people to know that she was there or involved. Uh, Bessie tells her that her dad wasn't at the riot. He's annoyed at everyone who was because he was obviously there with the union trying to sort everything out. And right. then behind his back, this mob have attacked Marlborough Mills and the Irish workers have arrived and it's all kind of come undone. Mm-hmm. Um gossip the gossip mill is turning and uh, it's suggested that boucher is the one that threw the stone but it was at thornton's sister fanny and that she's dead yeah i love that the gossip mill has just totally twisted the story but margaret yeah. should be relieved yeah i mean she should she doesn't correct anyone so uh, and then it goes does on she, to say that does she correct i thought she corrected bessie doesn't she say like it wasn't it wasn't Fanny. And then she says it wasn't Fanny, but she doesn't say yeah. it was me. And I was cracking on to Mr. Thornton. Yeah. Also, it wasn't Boucher. Yeah. So, yeah. So she says like, that's not true. But, and you know, she also goes on to say that, um, Boucher wasn't the one to throw the stone, mm-hmm. but whatever. No one's listening to her. Um, Higgins tells Boucher like for no reason apparently he says to him that he's going to give him up to the police and so Boucher whacks him and runs away yeah but he's like I wasn't actually gonna I wasn't actually gonna tell the police I just I just said I was and I'm like why why did you do that right lost his temper I <laughs> like this I man's know. kids are starving to death he's just been in a riot and you're like oh by the way I'm gonna tell the police that it was you and he's like it wasn't me <laughs> So, yeah, bizarre. Uh, Bessie falls asleep. Mags, you know, walks home as she does. And Mrs. Hale is downstairs when she gets back. And she is just loving the waterbed, which is good considering everything that Margaret had to go through to grab it. Right. Uh, And then she starts reminiscing about some nice mattresses. And then the mattresses make her think of her darling boy, Freddy's. Of course. And then she gets worked up. And says to Margaret that the only thing that will make her better is actually seeing Fred again. And then she insists, she, you know, she will not stop until Margaret has written a letter to her brother saying, mum's dying, you've got to come home. Mm-hmm. And Margaret keeps saying to her, like, oh, I really think we should wait until dad's back. Like, I think, you know, let's just put a pin in this and we'll talk to father and he'll know the best way of doing it. Uh, but she can't. Her mum is just, you've got to do it, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. So she goes off to the post office and as she's coming home, she bumps into her dad, explains the situation and he's like, 
well, they're probably going to kill your brother. <laughs> yeah. You should have waited right for me. To do it. Well, no, he I says guess... to her, like, you were right, but they will kill your brother. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's all <laughs> so on you, gonna Margaret. Call, they're going to call Marshall him, but he did the right thing. <laughs> so then the next chapter, chapter 26, is called Mother and Son. And uh, the thing I noticed about this chapter is the the reactions that Mrs. Thornton and Mr. Thornton are going through are kind of mirroring each other. So we'll talk about that a little bit. So Mr. Thornton is just stumbling around town and it says that he's in physical pain. And it sounds to me like he has a migraine. Yeah. He's under a lot of stress. He's like light sensitive, sound sensitive. You know, he's got these like blinding, cutting pains in his head. Uh, and he's in such distress that he accidentally gets on a bus. Oh, yeah, and yeah. goes to the countryside. It's... And I didn't notice that the first time around. And I was laughing so hard when I was writing my notes because I was like, <laughs> this is great. He gets on an um- omnibus, goes to the countryside. Um, the reason he gets on is because he's just like standing in the street. So they think he wants to board it. And he's so annoyed and his head hurts so much. <laughs> that instead of having a conversation with the person to say, I don't want to get on the bus, he just gets on the bus. I thought also he was just so English too. Like, that was like, I was like, oh, he's just too polite. Like, he's like, oh God, now I gotta board this bus. Like, out of politeness almost. I mean, so he goes to the the countryside. He like, just drive, he just sits on the bus and it goes further and further and further away from town. And he doesn't get off until everyone else gets off in like the next town. Like, he goes really far. And I have, when I lived in London... I got off the bus and usually someone would, like, my bus stop was really popular, so I never used to bother pressing the bell. And then there was this night that no one else was getting off Mm -hmm. and I just, the bus just went past my stop and I was so aware of what had happened that I actually went three more stops because I didn't want anyone to think that I had accidentally missed my (laughs) stop. Oh my God. And then I had to take a shortcut along a pitch black canal and it was really muddy and it was winter and I was covered. I just kept falling in the mud and then almost fell in the water. And then a man on the other side was walking his dog and he had to throw a torch at me so that I could see and not die. And that was all because I was too ashamed that I'd forgotten to press the bell. So This is terrible. I really relate to this bus story. Oh my God. Um, so he gets off the bus, he walks around a bit. And it says that all he gained in return for his six-penny omnibus ride was a more vivid conviction that there never was, never could be, anyone like Margaret. Yeah. That is a great line. It really is. That is perfect. I want that on a t-shirt. Thornton gets all the best lines in this. (laughs) He does. He really does. And then guess what? He just gets back on the bus and goes home. Poor guy. He just goes back again. Meanwhile, Mrs. Thornton has just been at home fretting. She's convinced that Margaret's going to say yes because her darling boy is an angel. Why would she say no? And she's taken out all of the all of the linen in the house. And like, did anyone else notice that Mrs. Thornton has linen and Mr. Thornton has linen, but Fanny has no linen? Poor Fanny. Poor Fanny. Linenless. I mean... Um, she decides... She's what? always kind of what? on the outside, right? Like, it just, I feel... Fanny doesn't have anything. I feel for her, because it's like, obviously, Mrs. Thornton has more regard for her son. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Poor Fanny. She never had a chance, guys. She never had a chance or any linen. Uh, so Mrs. Thornton finds this purple um, kind of tablecloth, damask. So it's very fancy. Purple is obviously a very expensive colour because it's double dyed, you know, mm-hmm. blue and red. Big history fact for you there. Uh, and she decides that because they'll be newlyweds, they should have like all of this beautiful stuff. So she starts unpicking her name, but she can't find the turkey thread, the red turkey thread to stitch his initials into it. So she stops. And it's just this like really beautiful motherly scene where she's just trying to keep, she's very practical. So she's trying to find something to do, but it, it just really shows the thought process that she's going through. Yeah. And then the bit that mirrors it, um, Mr. Thornton is that she has this horrible pain, um, a terrible pain, a pang of vain jealousy shot through her. She hardly knew whether it was more physical or mental, but it forced her to sit down. Mrs. Thornton had to sit down. Like, she is so upset that she feels physical pain. And I think it's really interesting that they're both experiencing that. And the issue here is that Mrs. Thornton kind of is admitting to herself that she does like Margaret. The only issue is that she's Southern, and so because she's from the South, she's like really proud and ignorant. <laughs> and I've got to say it, both of these things are true. <laughs> Mrs. Thornton she's is not, not wrong. wrong. She's not wrong here. Mr. Thornton comes home, doesn't have good news. So he stands behind his mum so that she can't see him looking sad. I know. And he says, no one loves me and no one cares for me but you, mother. <laughs> And guess what? Mrs. Thornton hates Margaret again. That was quick. She, like, really hates her. And they, long story short, they agree to never speak of it again. And they just start talking about the mill instead. And the last line of that chapter is, a stranger might have gone away and thought that he had never seen such frigid indifference of demeanour between such near relations. Uh, Chapter 27 comforting space Ooh. though to be like back talking mill business anyway that's just what they do though isn't it it's how they get through everything it's just yeah don't talk about the emotion just let's keep it practical don't think about yeah. your son getting married um you know don't sit on the sofa and cry don't about it. it go and sort out the table linen you know mm-hmm. yeah and that's why he's a successful businessman and she's a successful business mum mm-hmm. it's true Chapter 27, Fruit Piece. So I did actually, I googled Fruit Piece because I thought it was a weird word. Um, And what comes up is just loads of 17th and 18th century paintings of like very nice grapes and kind of some velvety peaches. So I like, I like that. I like, because later on, um, there's this thing with fruit and it just, I hope that's what it's a reference to, basically. So Mr. Thornton, uh, in contrast to the last chapter, this one opens with him um, going straight and clear into all the interests of the following day. He's got no physical pain. He's kind of getting back into himself like he's mastered his emotions and he's going to go about his business. He bumps into Doc D, uh, asks if there's anything he can do for Mrs. Hale. And Doc D's like, yeah, there's some like pretty good jargonelle pears. So you could go and get (laughs) some of those. Also, pairs and proposals keeps happening in this book. Oh, yeah. Henry and Mags are eating pears, and then he goes to buy some pears for, uh, not Henry, but Mr. Thornton goes to buy some pears for Margaret's mum. 
So Mm -hmm. pairs and proposals, keep an eye out for it. It might happen again. He goes and buys her a giant basket of fruit. And so that's, you know, a fruit piece, right? A lovely still life of delicious fruit. Lovely. And he's carrying it around town like an errand boy. And people keep looking at him like, (laughs) look at this weird man. Why is he carrying all this fruit? And he takes up to the hails and he will not look at Margaret. He just won't look at her. And I this love is that. Lovely line. And Gaskell describes his voice as speaking in that subdued and gentle tone, which is so touching when used by a robust man in full health. Whew. Yeah. He's just so, he's so hot, isn't he? He's very hot. He's very, very man. hot. Just Mr. Thornton. And what's funny is like, he's not talking to her. But he, like, he is painfully aware of her being there the whole time. But in Margaret's head, she's oh, yeah. like, well, I guess he didn't see me. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> he is not looking at you on purpose. <laughs> Why are you being so dense? Um, so, yeah, Mr. Thornton gives a fruit to her mum, doesn't talk to Margaret, off he goes. And then after he's gone, Margaret goes upstairs and Dixon is just going through her things. And she's like, Dixon, what are you doing? This is bizarre behaviour. And Dixon is like, oh, well, I was trying to find this old nightcap of yours because your friend died and she wants to be buried in something that you had. Yeah. Ugh. So that bombshell, by the way. Right. You should have gone to Netflix and chill. You should have gone to Netflix Bessie. and chill, Bessie, because she's dead now and she's going to just have... Also, the... give her a nice nightcap. She's dead. Come on, you were friends. <laughs> she's like your only friend in this hole. Yeah. So Bessie's sister Mary is waiting for her and she's just basically like, yeah, Bessie is dead and, you know, you should come and have a look at her body. And at first, Margaret doesn't want to go because she's never seen a dead body before. Um, but Mary is kind of like "Uh, please come she's got this wistful look and Margaret has to acknowledge the fact that this girl's sister has died and probably like is closer with Margaret than she was with her sister Mm -hmm. and so for this poor girl like she's going through grief but also she's probably very jealous of the relationship with Margaret Mm -hmm. uh, that Margaret and Bessie had that she didn't have with her and then Dixon goes on to say that um, looking at dead bodies being laid out is this like odd custom of common folks. And I thought that was really interesting because obviously the Victorians invented the memento mori. Uh, they would take yeah. photographs of, of their dead kind of reclining or sitting up and, you know, they tried to make them not look, not look dead so that they would right. have this photograph or they'd keep artifacts of stuff. So for me to read it and then have the idea that Margaret hasn't seen a dead body before or would kind of shy away from it went against what I... Yeah. Yeah, how I would imagine a Victorian dealing with death, I suppose. And then we're told that um, Bessie's final words were um, about Margaret and her father, Bessie's father, says, give her my affectionate respects and keep father from drink. That was the last thing she said to Mary. And then she popped her clogs she's dead she's gone she's gone i'm terrible i didn't write down the chapter titles this week guys you're just gonna have to make them up as you go along well no way (laughs) just you know just come up with something in your head um chapter 28 mags finally gets to see a dead body comfort and sorrow okay oh good um 
So Margaret does turn up to go see Bessie's body. She's not there for long before Bates shows up or Higgins. Um, (laughs) He wails and, you know, he turns to leave. But Margaret stops him and she tells him what his daughter's last words were. Don't drink, man. Don't drink. So um, she then ends up like inviting him home, which at first I got a little bit like Margaret, like, come on. (laughs) But then I forgot, like. Your dad is a minister. Like, this is probably the right decision. Like, you he know was what? Like, a minister. Yeah. So it's like, you know, don't turn to the drink. I know you're not a religious man, but why don't you just come, like, have a conversation with my father and just help you sort through your grief? And she does, like, she's like, she does stress about it. She's like, oh, why have I done that? Like, mom is dying. She does. That's, it's like, not, not a good time. It's not a good time to be in the household. Never a good but time. But yeah, she, someone's yeah. soul. Yeah, well, it is it is the, like, ultimate act of Victorian womanhood, isn't it? Just, like, steering yeah. him away from vice and towards religion. Yes! Yes. So, you know, Bates and Mr. Hale end up discussing religion, and then, of course, everything kind of turns to the failed strike, because that's really what's consuming Mr. Higgins at the moment. And that's where he had been, basically, um, the whole day. It was with the union. Yeah, trying to mop that up. Yeah, so that's, that's a whole mess. Um... And just, I mean, he's just, like, really feeling the loss. Like, it's just, like, he's lost his daughter. He's lost, like, the strike has just completely put him out yeah, of work. Yeah, his life's going to fall apart. It really is going to fall apart. Um, he explains that the workmen did not expect the masters to bring over any of the Irish workers. Yeah. And um, the committee did not expect um, passions getting the better of reason, as in the case of Boucher and the rioters. Yeah. So finally, they pray together. And I noticed that you put this on Twitter. I had written it down in my notes as well. Um, Margaret joins them. Twitter and Instagram. the last line of the chapter is Margaret, the churchwoman, her father, the dissenter, Higgins, the infidel, knelt down together. It did them no harm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a good scene. So um, it's a good scene. I really, I really liked that Margaret nice. kind of gets home and she's like, "Oh, by the way, Dad, I've brought home uh, a drunk spinner, yeah, writer, like strike man." And her dad is like, "Margaret, what is? Why would you do that?" <laughs> and then he talks, and there's this whole bit, and like Higgins is uneducated, but he's a very sensible man, and he's respectful, and he speaks in a low voice, like even though his daughter's just died. Like, yes, he's a little bit tipsy, but he kind of like sobers up and he isn't ungodly. Yeah. That's the thing that the, like he doesn't, he doesn't seem to believe in organized religion, but like her dad just says to her, like you said he was an, an infidel. Like this guy, like he's fine. Like I'm going to read the Bible to him. We're going to be great. And Margaret's like, let's not like his daughter's <laughs> just died. Let's maybe not push it. Uh, but the, but it all works out. Yeah. In the end brings him a little bit of comfort. I mean, he doesn't have a job. So, I mean, things are going to, it's yeah. I don't see a good future for Bates, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you know? Oh, I, I do. Know. I think he's going to be okay. Feel- he's a very sensible man. I think he's going to end up in a room with Thornton. Well, I, I hope this we can is get- the thing. They both think the other one's a monster and they're not. I, I think they're definitely going to end up in a room together. I just, oof, I don't know. I fear for him in his work prospects in this climate, hmm. this current climate. Hmm. Um, chapter 29 Oh my God, Edith and her letters. <laughs> so yeah. Margaret receives a letter from Edith, which um, she is reading out to her mother 
again, Edith has like a perfect life. She has had her baby, which she has named Cosmo. Um, which at first I kind of thought was like hipstery and like annoying, but (laughs) I just also like, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts on what a lot of my friends are naming their children. Lauren, if you have a friend that has named their child Cosmo and you've just said that you find it hipstery and annoying, that is a lot of shade to be throwing. (laughs) I know it is a lot of shade. I'm sorry. I guess that means it's a yes, and you do know someone with a child called Cosmo. I will say this. I did a little bit of research into the name, and it is the English form of uh, Cosimo, uh, which is brought to England um, in the 18th century by the second Scottish Duke of Gordon. And it means decency and order. And it's also um, a saint's name, but it's, you know, still annoying. Yeah, so that doesn't make it any less annoying <laughs> yeah, for having seriously. done the research. So, um, I am also, like, really annoyed with the fact this letter, like, Edith is just convinced that if Mags and Mrs. Hale, like, come to Corfu, like, everything's gonna be fine. Yeah. Like, she's just as sort of naive and annoying as Margaret is. Like, I'm like, oh, that's where she gets it from. I get it. So, while she's reading the letter, Mr. Thornton comes in and... He doesn't want to make eye contact. He's not acknowledging Margaret, of course. He's still playing that game. And offers Mrs. Hale some fruit. More fruit. Just loads of fruit. There's so much fruit in this fruit piece. Fruity. And um, then he leaves. And Margaret's sort of like free to just talk. And she starts slanging. She's using some like local northern slang. She says slack of work. And Mrs. Hale starts telling her off like oh your manners have gotten coarse since we've moved to Melbourne and um just as that is said like Mr. Thornton and Mr. Hale come back in the room just in time to hear her say you've gotten like you've picked up some vulgar habits (laughs) of course and um Margaret is embarrassed and tries to like smooth everything over And uh, it it doesn't matter, though. Like, Mr. Thornton was deeply resentful of her words and felt that he disliked her keenly. He was mistaken, though, for it was a stinging pleasure to be in the room with her and feel her presence. Oh, he can't get enough. He can't. He can't. Just, ah, he can't help himself. Also, chapter 29 is called A Ray of Sunshine, which refers directly to the letter from Corfu and this idea that if they can just get Mrs. Hale out of the fog and the damp over into Corfu. It'll just magically cure her. Yeah, it'll just. But also, Mr. Yeah. Thornton keeps appearing like a ray of sunshine. sunshine. Look at um, all these levels, I these have, layers. I have to say, too, when I was reading this chapter, I was thinking that, you know, I mean, Mrs. Hale probably has cancer and she's probably had cancer for quite a long time. Yeah. And I'm wondering how long, like, I'm like, I'm just, yeah, I just was wondering, like, how long she's had the condition and just, like, how long, like, we can attribute some of her behaviors to, like, being in pain, you know? Yeah, I mean, so my, like, my Omar, who is now, like, in a home and stuff, would, she was horrible to us when she, when we were kids. And then um, it turned out it was, like, She's got a type of dementia that makes you, like, mean. 
Mm-hmm. And like, so I, we're literally talking like 20 years of this illness being on set and like no one knowing right. that it was kind of coming. And then you kind of look back at hindsight and you're like, oh, this is why this person was, you know, unbearable yeah. to be around for all these years. Or like if someone's in a lot of pain, but they're trying to hide it. And so all of their attention is, you know, trying to cover up that. So they've maybe got a little bit less. Right. Um. You, fewer fucks to give, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you're right. So I just, you know, like, I just, if I she's know. been sick for a while. I've been thinking about this, and now that it's, like, sort of out in the open, like, it just feels mm-hmm. like the air has been cleared, you know? But also, she, like, she doesn't complain about anything. She's she, not. She literally hasn't complained about anything for uh, maybe, like, 20 chapters. It's true. It's true. So, like, it's now that it's out in the open, it's just like, okay, it just feels like it's a relief. Like, we know, you know what the status yeah. is. And um, I just also thought about that too. Cause like, I, you know, I'm slowly getting over this, but I had nerve damage and just like chronic pain and just, it, you can just easily yeah. sink into negativity. So I don't know. I just was thinking like, how long has she had this pain? And I don't know. Has it been a year? Has it been six months? Unclear. Anyway. I'd say like by this point in the book, Mrs. Hell is definitely considerably more likable character than she was at the start. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you just understand her more. You do. So, yeah. Um, Chapter 30. You got the title of chapter 30? Home at last. Home at last. Um, So, oh, did I skip a whole thing? I think I did in chapter 29, where um, Mrs. Hale is like, hey, I want Mrs. Thornton to come visit me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Because she wants a friend for Mags. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. So, um, Mrs. Thornton does come. She doesn't want to do it, guys, but she does make it to the house. And she is actually really softened by the fact that, like, Mrs. Hale is sick. Like, she sees her and she's like, okay, I took things a little personally. Like, this woman actually is very ill. Yeah. She's got my water bed. She needs yeah, it. Yeah, like, you know. Okay. I get it. So, um, Mrs. Hale is like there, she wants Mrs. Thornton there to, um, to make her promise to look out for Margaret. And Mrs. T just desperately hates Margaret at this moment. (laughs) Yeah. And she is just battling this promise. Like, she's like, "Uh, uh, okay, I see what you're saying. She finds a good way out of it, though. She's like, well, you're right. I promise to always tell your daughter when she's being an uppity cow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, but my daughter's never wrong. My daughter is great. Just, you know, just be a friend for her. And she's like, ah. Yeah. Like, I'll be honest. I'll, you know, I'll help her out. And then she just like kind of bounces immediately. Like, okay, yes, I'll help your daughter out in my own way. I gotta go. Gotta go. (laughs) Bye-bye. See you in the next life, basically. Yeah, just out. (laughs) Meanwhile, guess who turns up at the door? Fred! Oh my god, it's about time. It's spooky, because they've all been just sitting there, like, stressing about how sick she is, and, like, the candles have gone out, there's no fire, the house is pitch black. Yeah. And then Margaret goes down to the door. And there he is. And we've just been talking about him so much, and we've been, like, anxious, you know? About yeah. him showing up, and then it finally happens, and I'm like, relief. And this whole chapter, I was very anxious, because I was like, just get Fred in the room yeah. with his mom. Because yeah, yeah. I felt like she was going to be, like, 
Bessie Higgins and just pop off like well they keep saying like she's waited this long <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's one what's more a, day what's one more day I like, did no. really love the bit where um, Margaret lights the candle finally and then they catch each other like both um, kind of examining each other because they haven't seen each other in like a decade yeah it's been a long time I mean she was being raised by her aunt Shaw um, yeah and he's he's been off he's been off see. so and I just yeah. They're strangers, There's this connection really. between them, um, despite being strangers. Like, they immediately like each other. They do. She calls him her dear, dear brother. It, yeah, it's very touching. And they do have that shared connection of, like, their idealized version of Helston, too. Like, yes. they still have that in there. Like, that. there's this memory somewhere that lives in both of them. It's like, Helston, the beautiful, the roses, the this idyllic yeah. childhood. Um. So she goes up to tell her dad that Fred has arrived and Mr. H is just like a total mess. You know, thankfully, he's finally able to like accept it and then go on to see Fred. And Margaret is able to have a moment of just like relief and cry, which is great, which I think was really necessary for her character. Just let some of it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So thankfully, mother and son get to spend some time together, and that's pretty much it. She's gone. <laughs> yeah. And um, is it less than twenty four hours? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It just it just happens so quickly, um, which I think is really true to like illness and death. Like you're expecting it, you're expecting it, and then suddenly it seems to happen suddenly, even though it's not. But also the idea that like people do hold on until they do. They do. Thing, and then all of that energy is it's like it's not just this thing that happens in movies and yeah. books, like yeah and then she then she was gone and like the thing that stuck with me the most in this chapter was when margaret was talking to frederick and she was just talking about like all that lost time that she had with her family yeah. and how she was just getting to know her mother and just getting her mother to love her yeah and um then that did make me think about Margaret and her love situation because like it, it brought me back to Henry Lennox's proposal because I could see why she rejected him and rejected him so quickly it was like not only was she not attracted to him but it was also like I want to go back to Helston and like be a daughter and be a part of this family like I don't want that role to yeah. be taken away from me just yet and yes. um yeah you know but I still have questions about her and Thornton which well, we're gonna I- talk about later I anyway. think this whole family's experiencing time loss. Like, look at Fred. Like, yeah, he he can't come home. Like, he loved his mother. Imagine how much time he would have spent with this family if if he hadn't been if he hadn't been a mutineer. Um, I think it's yeah, it's just a very common theme. And Mrs. Thornton trying to snatch those last few minutes, and Mister uh, Mister Higgins like not having the time to say goodbye to his daughter like she's gone while his time is occupied with something else I think um yeah lost yeah lost time lost time so chapter 31 you What's ready ch- yeah what is it it's a, a line from old lang syne oh yeah should old acquaintance be forgot yep this chapter feels pretty action packed yeah um so, because, like, yeah, I felt really bad for Margaret at the beginning of this chapter. Because it was like, she has no time to really grieve. Yeah, it's like when she had to move house. She's yeah. doing everything again. The shit just gets dumped on this girl all the time. So, um, 
it's like, okay, your mother's dead. You need to make the preparations for this funeral. Because she mm-hmm. talks to her father a little bit, but he's useless. He's like, I don't know. I, I can't. I yeah. don't even know. And Fred just keeps crying. Yeah. And she's just like, okay, so I've got to be the adult again. Um, on top of all of this nonsense, just like Dixon comes in and pulls Margaret aside and is like, listen, I just ran into this guy. He's a Southampton man. Yeah. He's called Leonard's. And he was all like, oh my God, Dixon, do you still work for the Hales? Do you know anything about where Fred is? We can totally split the reward money for this guy. Yeah. Like, let's do it. Also, this is Dixon's fault. She saw him and she was like, hello. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Dixon, you see him, run. What are you doing? (laughs) My God, it's the worst. So, of course, like, she's telling Margaret this because Margaret, of course, has to go, like, dump this bad news on Fred. Yeah. So she lets Fred know and he's, you know, oh, my God, Leonard's that guy's the worst. Don't want to get caught up with him. And he said that, you know, he he knows that he has to leave. He was already spooked because he thought um, a tradesman came to the door earlier. Oh, who could that be? I know. And he was like, oh, my God. And this guy came and I thought, you know, I was being called out. But of course, there's no tradesman. It was Thornton. Yeah. And um, Margaret gets kind of like fluttery, right? Like she's like, oh, wait, no, he's not a tradesman. Like you're mistaken. Like he's a gentleman. And um, yeah. Yeah, she's, so like she's kind of like talking him, Thornton up. Talking him up. Yeah. She's def- she's defending him. And Fred is kind of like, oh, okay, gotcha. Um, I do love that he's sorry. like snobby in the same way that Margaret and Mrs. Hale were as well. Because something oh, yeah. else we skipped over as well is that Mrs. Hale is like, oh, Margaret, you're so prejudiced against Mr. Thornton. And I'm like, Mrs. Hale, <laughs> excuse you. <Right? laughs> yeah. Um. But she does say, like, you know, Mr. Thornton's been a good friend to this family and he's very close to dad. And Fred's kind of like, he kind of relents and he's like, oh, you know, he sounds nice. Like, I'm really sorry I can't get to meet him. I'm really sorry I can't be a part of your life or dad's life, you know, like, because of all of this. Yeah. And and vice versa. Like, I'm sorry that you can't get to meet my fiance, Dolores. Yeah. And like, oh, by the way, now I'm Roman Catholic because I got to marry Dolores and she's Roman Catholic. (laughs) And um, quite a big bomb to drop. But also like Margaret is surprised here and she never thought about it. Like that really stood out to me. She's like, oh, I never thought that Fred would meet someone or (laughs) have a life or anything like that. Um, And I'm like, of course, of course he wouldn't. So Fred also tries to uh, convince them to come away with them to Spain. But Mr. Hale's like, no, like one move already did in my wife. So there's that really lovely line. There's this really lovely line as well when um, Margaret's trying to find out about Dolores and she sees the hair and he's like, oh, you want to see that, don't you? But he won't let her look at it because he says, no mean brick shall be a specimen um, of the building of my palace. Oh, yeah. That's a good line. That is a good line. It's very good. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you know, it's pretty evident that Fred's got to go. He's also going to go back to Dolores. So, yeah, he's going to get out leaving. But Margaret um, is like, you know, I don't know. Like, what if we get you an attorney? Yeah. 
what if we like maybe we could just sort this whole thing out I don't know like let's just like give it a try and she does end up sort of convincing Fred that maybe they can consult an attorney yeah and what attorney do they know Henry Lennox Henry Lennox oh my god I like dun, that dun, she dun. thinks that Henry is still just gonna help her though. I know <laughs> Margaret oh my god so, uh, chapter 32, what's the title on that one? The title of chapter 32 is Miss Chances. Oh, this is a great wow. chapter. It's a great chapter. Not a ton happens in this chapter. It is action, action, action. Yeah. Basically, um, Mag- Mags accompanies Fred to the train station where they are, of course, accosted by a very drunk Leonard. Who works there. He's a porter. Like, it's true. That's hilarious. He is a porter. Like, oh, you should go by train so you can avoid Leonard. Oh, by the way, Leonard works there. Right? Ugh. Thank God he's drunk. Thank God they push him off a They ledge. push him. And uh, thankfully, like, uh, Fred is just able to run and, like, catch a train. And Margaret is, like, sort of hiding the rest of the time. And at one point, she's, like, she's listening to his co-workers talk about him yeah they're like oh leonard's drunk again yeah he's drunk and he also was like hey i need money to catch a train to london because he's obviously in pers- in pursuit of fred and uh they're like no way man like but that means he's me five shillings well, that's the it, yes because yes. yeah so he falls and then afterwards they're talking about this conversation about him needing to catch a train to london and also mags checks and his body isn't there so he hasn't died yeah, he's fine. He's fine. He's around. But who 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 saw them at the train station, Lauren? Uh, some tradesmen, I think. Mr. Thornton. I know. Oh, <laughs> you're faking me out. <laughs> <laughs> some tradesman who came Mr. to the Hale. door. I don't know. Mr. Hale was carrying some fruit. Some dude station. with a fruit piece. <laughs> <laughs> He did. He saw Margaret running at the train station with a man. I tell you what, Lauren, I would like to see Thornton's fruit piece. <laughs> I bet Is you that... would. <laughs> so now we're going to leave it there, guys. Dun, dun, dun. Cliffhanger. Let's um, let's talk about some listener comments. Man, there were so many. Can I, I um, can I tell you a secret? Yeah. So, all week. I was too embarrassed to to ask you, but um, I couldn't find the the chapter thread for this week <laughs> because the picture was different to the previous two weeks. <laughs> it was just like you had blindness to it. <laughs> yeah, I was like skimming it. I was like, man, where is it? I've seen it. I just couldn't find it, and it's because it was like a newspaper clipping right. picture instead of being like a still from the oh adaptation. <laughs> and then so I like I read them all. Uh, an hour before oh. we recorded this, oh, good. but like did not engage. <laughs> so I like did a couple of tweets, but I feel like this week I've just been in my own little bubble of north and south. <laughs> so well, stupid. We had, we had some really good comments. Yeah, they were great. <laughs> guys are awesome. Uh, so Quill Jen, who um, talks with us a lot over on Twitter, uh, was actually referencing last week's episode, and she said. In last week's episode, you discussed why the town was named Milton. 
I wonder if Gaskell was referencing John Milton and Paradise Lost, it would tie into the novel's themes of faith and religion. True story. Um, and I agree with this, uh, as I referenced earlier in the episode, um, she named Bellingham after the Bellingham in um, Scarlet Letter for Ruth. So this is this is definitely something Gaskell yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> this is her thing. Like, like first impressions, like that chapter, like she is pointing to other writers and yeah. 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 Like she, if she were a current writer, she'd be like, you know, using pop culture references and she'd be writing Stranger Things season three. (laughs) Or The Simpsons. I feel like she'd be more of like a Shonda Rhimes person. Who's Shonda Rhimes? She writes your favorite show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just love Grey's Anatomy. I know, you love Grey's You still Anatomy. need to get me that picture of Richard. Come on. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> um, Fun fact, six degrees of separation. Lauren knows the guy that plays Richard Weber in Grey's Anatomy. How insane <laughs> is that? Blows my mind every time. Come on. I know, it blows your mind. He's my dad's best friend. And yet somehow... I don't have a classy black and white photograph with a little signature to Hannah. Best of luck in all of your endeavours. Richard <laughs> Webber. I'll let him know. Thank you. I'll let Big him know. Big fan. He'll be pleased. <laughs> um, Kimberly Treesong Lore had a lot to say this week. So I loved much. It. Um, she kind of like lit up the thread, which was great. <laughs> yeah, doing our job for us. Thank you, Kimberly. <laughs> Thank you. I know I was like not super active this week too because I just had a bunch of work stuff to finish up. I saw your Been... comment at the bottom just like, good job, guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I'm the worst. Um, But let's see. Where should we start, Kimberly? We had so many good things to say. Well, I liked, uh, Kimberly mentions the, um, and so she shuddered away from the threat of his enduring love. Um, And as you were asking me earlier, like, are there any links to the Pride and Prejudice stuff? And um, she says, although Margaret's refusal of Thornton was similar to Lizzie's gut punch to Darcy, Thornton's vow to keep loving her was very different from Darcy's efforts to forget his crush. I was struck how things could be romantic in a book or movie, but if it was happening to me in real life, I might be creeped out. I mean, totally. And that's that's very topical as well, I think, the, the idea yeah. of when is someone persistent and when is someone um, abusive. Right. And I would say that, oh. that because Mr. Thornson says to her, don't worry, I'm not going to express it. Yeah. That's I'm the, just going to so, quietly love you. I will ignore you. Yeah. I think that... that that's the bit that he's not saying to her, like, I'm going to keep, I'm just going to keep pushing this. I'm going to keep going. He's like, tell you what, you've said no. I can't do anything about this. This is just how I feel. And I think yeah. that's, you know, that's fine. I do too. It's mature. Um, she also brought up the theme of mother and son running throughout the set of chapters with Mrs. Thornton and John, and then also Frederick and Mrs. Hale. Yeah. Um, this primary conviction being that mothers love their sons selfishly. Mrs. Hale's need to see her son before she died is understandable, but incredibly selfish. It's uh, one thing to want to see your long absent son, but upon threat of him hanging, damn, that's thoughtless. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It is, but he didn't have to come. He didn't have to come. He did immediately. Like, no questions asked, like, arrived before even word that he was coming. Yeah, before had arrived. his letter. 
Um, also, it's it's so hard, too, because I think I, I was really struck by like when she was talking to Margaret about her son, like, oh, he's my firstborn and you don't understand. Like, he was great. And when you she's were talking an about ugly him as a child. baby, like, oh, you were an ugly child, but he was perfect and everyone loved him. <laughs> it's just like, it's harsh. It's harsh. Yeah, I, I looked like um, my mom called me the Duchess's pig when I was a child. I was like a very Aww. fat, red, crying baby. And so I have just grown up being told very similar things to <laughs> what Mrs. Hale said to Margaret. I, I blossomed. It's fine. It's but fine. yeah, as a child, I too was not an, an ugly baby. So just not there. I feel that, Margaret. My brothers yeah. are all very cute. <laughs> oh, man. Andrea Marshall is basically in the same boat that we're in with Margaret and her feelings on love. Yeah, bringing it back to that chapter four rejection of Henry's proposal uh, and the quote, Margaret felt guilty and ashamed of having grown so much into a woman as to be thought of in marriage. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right. It's like this Victorian shame that we're going to have like need to read around. Yeah, exactly. I'd really like to do some research on it. And actually, Andrea says that there is an interesting discussion on the point of um, women being in the public sphere and all eyes being on Margaret uh, in the Penguin Classics edition. Uh, But she says not to read it until we finish the book because there are spoilers. So I'll definitely try and hunt down one of those so that we can have a look. Yeah, absolutely. I've got the Norton anthology version. Actually, I already had a spoiler, thanks to Trudy, <laughs> this week. <laughs> so uh, one of our listeners, Trudy, shared a... Uh, well, you shared a piece that Trudy had written on her uh, North and South blog that I'd recommend everyone going and checking out. And I was, like, digging around, having a look, and I found this timeline of the book. <laughs> and no. I, don't know why, I don't know why I looked at it, but I did. And then it was, like, the day after the proposal... Bessie Higgins dies. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I knew it was coming, but <laughs> like, who who reads spoilers for a book that they're specifically reading 10 chapters at a time of? <laughs> like, don't do it. I'm an idiot. That's why we're having Trudy on after we finish the chapters. Yeah, so that Trudy doesn't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Kirabelle Lavelle said, I really like these chapters. I like all the chapters, but these these were a particularly good set of chapters. I agree. So she did have a couple of questions in this one comment. She said, um, one, how does Gaskell know so much about the strike from the newspapers of the time? And two, is there a particular reason she uses quotes at the beginning of each chapter? Is there any significance I might be missing with these? So I would say for number one, um, yeah, I, I think we'll get into this more later on the show, but Gaskell, like, think about who Gaskell's, like, hanging around with and, like, sort of the life and times of Elizabeth Gaskell. Um, Manchester is, like, a very political city. It's um, also she's a very industrial herself. city. Like, she is very industrial she's city. about yeah. something that's happening around her, like, in, in yeah. the streets, like, where she lives, so... And all of the sort of like dinner parties that she's throwing, the people that she's inviting into her home, it's all like, you know, literati. It's all like political activists. So this is something that's like she's engaging with um, with people of her own class. 
but then also her husband is a minister. And so think about all the people that are coming to her husband for advice um, or talking about like these sort of issues. Um, I actually am just now thinking about the Gaskell or sorry, the Bronte Society this past week shared a little story on their Facebook page about um, a woman coming to Reverend Bronte and saying, you know, like my husband, he drinks, he beats me and um, he mismanages our money. And like, it's just a very, like my, my child and I are starving and like, what should we do? And Mr. Bronte was just like, get out. (laughs) Just, you need to leave him. Yeah. And he discussed this with his children as well. And that is basically like the plot of um, Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Lauren, so, I haven't finished it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, think about these things that William Gaskell, like the people that are coming to see William Gaskell and talking to him about, like, these are the issues that, you know, she's discussing with her husband on a daily basis. And then also um, the charities well, that she's involved with. Like, she's involved with a lot of young women and famine. And, you know, so she's getting a lot of firsthand knowledge of, you know, the strike. And as you said last week, this is based on a real strike. So... Yeah, and Preston Preston is very close to Manchester. Yeah. So again, lo- it it was local news. This this was happening not very far away from where she lived. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was it was current it was current affairs. You know, yeah. It it's like someone writing about the Trump administration now. Yeah, basically. And then number two, you know, I'm ashamed to say, like, I have not been really paying as much attention. So the quotes at the beginning, yeah, I'm sure they are used to, they, they do feel like they're setting the tone for the chapter. I imagine they yeah. are. <laughs> I imagine it is well, strategic. Well, actually, so, um, chapter 29, A Ray of Sunshine, for example, quotes Coleridge, and it says, Some wishes crossed my mind and dimly cheered it, and one or two poor melancholy pleasures, each in the pale unwarming light of hope, Silvering its flimsy wings, flew silent by moths in the moonbeam. Okay. So a ray of sunshine there. It's it's almost saying like there's a double meaning to the chapter title. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's a ray of sunshine, it's kind of it's like a cold light. It's not it's not quite making everything okay. Your yeah. mind is dimly cheered. They're melancholy pleasures. Mister Thornton is seeing Margaret and he's electrified by it but he's not happy right edith's letter is a cheerful letter but it's in stark contrast to the horrible stuff that's going on so yeah i think it it gives you a little bit of context and it gives you another writer's thoughts on the same on the same subject beautifully said hannah thanks um (laughs) sarah zettle said so is it just me or is this book an examination of comparative snobberies mags versus mrs thornton you know, versus Mr. Thornton versus Mrs. Hale. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're right. Yeah. It's not just you. Yeah. It's the book. The whole it's book. It's the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. Every, uh, like, yeah, like we were saying last week, everyone is against everyone. Like even Bessie, when she says, well, why are you going for dinner with the Thorntons? You, yeah. You're going to have something to wear. Like it, it works on every single level. Totally. Yeah. And then I can't remember if we discussed this last week or not. I feel like it happened in between somewhere. Did we talk about Leanne and the waterbeds? What? Okay. I don't think we talked about Leanne and the waterbeds. Um, so Leanne had actually, I know we, we had talked about like, what is a waterbed? And like, were waterbeds invented yeah, I think in Victorian in my head, times? Like, like, a waterbed is like a 1970s porn prop. 
Right, exactly. And and when I was reading this too, I was like, is it more like a giant water bottle? <laughs> like, what is it? So um, Leanne did send us a link on Twitter, which was great, which I believe I retweeted. And it was just about the history of the waterbed. And so there was a version invented during the Victorian era by a Scottish physician. And so this is the waterbed they are talking of. I don't have a lot of description as far as like what exactly it is. I'm guessing it's not a full scale waterbed. Okay. But who knows? Because um, like she just, Mrs. Thornton just like has one and just gives it to her. That's like someone yeah. being like, can I borrow your mattress? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I don't need a mattress. I know. It's I'm just fine. feeling like it is a giant water bottle type situation. Um, okay. Or like a body pillow or some, you know, something yeah. that's a little bit easier to transport. Uh, the waterbed, like the modern waterbed that we're thinking of, um, was like invented in 1971. So, yes, I got it right. Yes, you're right. 1970s, <laughs> baby. So there you go. Um, and this is like I'm so proud of that 1971. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, I think that is pretty good for this week. It's you know. Uh, yeah, I'm more We're, than happy to finish on that We're little nugget time. of information. Right? <laughs> um, I just want to say before we go, thank you guys so much for listening. 